This presentation is from Design Research 2021, day two. Okay, our last um, presentation to close out day two comes from a, um, a, a group of people, and, and I call it a group. There are four presenters about to come online. We have um, Paul and Beck from Meld Studios, and we have Sean and Peter from Inside Out Institute. Hello, hello, hello. Well, well thanks, Steve. <laughs> Looking forward to Wonderful. it. Wonderful. <laughs> hello, Sean. Hey, how's it going? Very well. I will, I will hand over to you. Thank you very much for helping us uh, close out day two. Um, so I'll start us off. Um, hi, everyone. Um, a few things before we get started. I just wanted to share some quick reminders for the session. Um, please don't take screen grabs, captures, or use any images or share any of this presentation. Uh, the reason being that we are sharing real stories of people with lived experience of eating disorders and GPs who uh, serve them. And so please respect the privacy of the people involved. We also wanted to um, say that if the presentation brings up any issues for you to please contact people who can support you, including all the relevant um, support organizations. Over 1 million people in Australia are living with an eating disorder. This is estimated at around 4 to 5% of the Australian population. People with eating disorders have amongst the highest mortality rates out of all mental illness, with anorexia nervosa in particular having the highest of any psychiatric illness. People with eating disorders often present with at least one additional mental health diagnosis. This is commonly depression and or anxiety, but in general, they're just not always straightforward for GPs to identify and treat. Fortunately, there are evidence-based treatments that are effective and people can recover from an eating disorder at all stages of illness. However, current estimates suggest that less than one in four, around 23.2% of people 23 access treatment for the eating disorder and only a small portion of those receive evidence-based care. At the same time, people with eating disorders access health services at a much higher rate, with around 71% of people with an eating disorder having four or more consultations prior to diagnosis. Up to 73% of the time, the individual is seeking treatment for weight loss. What all this points to, and what is clear from the work being done at the Inside Out Institute for Eating Disorders and other organizations that specialize in eating disorders, is that the majority of people with an eating disorder are not being identified and they're not being provided with the best available treatment for their illness. What's more, although people can recover from an eating disorder at all stages of severity, early intervention is vital to reducing the course and severity of illness and alleviating unnecessary suffering. It's not uncommon for people to go for 30 years without diagnosis or treatment for their eating disorder, even when seeing their GPs regularly for co-occurring issues like weight concerns or depression. People in primary care, largely made up of GPs, but also including practice managers and nurses, are in a great position to support the screening, assessment, and early intervention using the best available evidence. Hi, I'm Sean Rom, and I'm the Digital Project Coordinator at Inside Out, and I'm also an honours student in psychology. And I'll hand it over to Peter now. 
Hello, I'm Peter Marks. I'm the National Programs Manager at the Inside Out Institute. IOI is Australia's National Institute for Research in Clinical Excellence and Eating Disorders. So our mission is to really transform the treatment landscape for people with eating disorders. And we want to do that through research, workforce development, and supporting clinical excellence and practice change. The Clinical Dig Digital Support Tool Project started in April last year, so just as COVID was kicking off. Um, it was funded by the federal government as one of a number of projects that we're doing that are focusing on translating evidence into practice. In health, we know that it takes an average of 17 years for a research innovation to make it into everyday practice. And clearly this is problematic. That's why the government and IOI through our projects are really determined to do something to improve this. Our working hypothesis is that if we can improve early detection and intervention at the point of primary care, particularly with GPs, and if we can point them in the direction of evidence by supporting their decision-making, then we should be able to limit the progression of illness and improve people's health and wellbeing. The objective of our project is to create a digital support tool for GPs. So we started last year by engaging MELD and working with Beck and Paul to take a design, research and co-design approach to solving this pretty complex challenge. There are lots of issues that really need to be considered in this space. There's system issues such as lack of available specialist services and lots of complexities around Medicare rebates. There are practice issues such as how long GPs have for a consultation and if a person presents with problem X and they, you've only got 10 minutes to see them, then there isn't really time for a GP to raise the issue of potential problem Y, which the person hasn't brought up themselves. There are workforce issues such as um, education and training around eating disorders for health professionals, hardly anyone does it, and the fact that not all GPs are interested in specialising in mental health or in eating disorders. There's pretty significant stigma and stereotyping around uh, and associated with eating disorders and mental health in general. And that might mean that someone who's got symptoms of an eating disorder or who's really severely at risk of developing an eating disorder can be missed. And of course, there are individual factors that are associated with the experience of having an eating disorder. So that's the denial of illness or of how severe it actually is as well as really significant fear and ambivalence about engaging in treatment. And that can mean that people could slip through the cracks. We know that people who have eating disorders and their loved ones can really struggle to find services and get help. And we know that people don't get the treatment that they need often until the severity of their illness cannot be denied or it's really impacting their life. And we know that many people get directed to treatment which isn't actually evidence-based. So as the gatekeepers to other health services, GPs are often expected to know everything about everything, and that simply isn't possible. However, we also know that patients talk to their GPs about mental health more than any other health issue. So that's why it's really important to help them to approach mental health issues such as eating disorders in a more informed, supported and evidence-based way. We selected um, MELD to undertake this work because the approach that they described to us really fit with what we know is important about working with people who have eating disorders. Co-design is a 
relatively, it's not completely new, but a relatively new term in the broader mental health field. But it's obviously an approach that's synonymous with how we work with people on a one-to-one level. We have to co-design how treatment happens because we can't make people recover. Qualitative research focusing on people's stories and experiences is really common in health and in mental health research. So we just wanted to bring that approach into the process analysis phase of our digital support tool project. I'm going to hand over to the Mel team now. Thank you, Peter. Um, so we're just going to get into the how now, some of the ways that we approach this challenge, um, which Peter and Sean have so beautifully just laid out for us. So um, the title of this talk relates to, you know, context and co-design. And so we're talking also about the some of the challenges that we faced um, with COVID. So um, what happened at the beginning was we, as Peter said, it kicked off in April and we had to do the bulk of our research remotely. And this meant a lot of good things as well as a few challenges, which we'll get into in a sec. But on the positive side, it really gave us, as you can see from the map, if that's going to go through, yeah, as you can see from that map, is that we had this great breadth of geography. So we were able to speak to people in um, not just metropolitan, which is might have been what we were limited to if we did all our sessions face-to-face, -face, but um, regional and rural as well. And you can see we had quite a good spread across, across the states and territories there. Um, it also meant we we got a really good breadth of context too. So we spoke, so in the example of GPs, we spoke to GPs in, you know, different types of practices. We spoke to GPs with um, different levels of knowledge of eating disorders or perhaps propensity to treat mental health uh, issues. We were able to speak to people with lived experience and their families in more remote areas where it's actually more difficult to get care. Um, and of course, not having to travel meant we could just reach those different areas that you see on the map more easily and in the time that we had. Um, COVID meant a rapid adoption of video technology, um, which also helped help the cause. Just move on, Sean. So this is one of our participants who generously allowed us to share part of a small part of her story um, today. So Look, a feature of the approach um, is the intention to humanise the work that we're doing. And I know that sounds obvious, but um, language is a big part of this. And in the spirit of participatory design, we called the people that we worked with participants or wherever possible people. Um, alternatives could be, you know, research respondents or even worse subjects. And of course, in the culture of healthcare, a lot of the accepted conventions um, are to use words like patients, but wherever possible and to the credit um, of the whole team, wherever, you know, we always tried to talk about our participants as people with lived experience of eating disorder or people providing care for people um, with, with eating disorder. So I guess thinking a bit more carefully about the language in this way um, can really help us all to deconstruct some of the hierarchies which exist in this particular concept uh, context, sorry, um, these hierarchies can leave people feeling disempowered and they can create painful dynamics um, between these different groups. Um, as many of you will experience when we reimburse research participants, we're often based this on a perceived level of skill or how in demand the cohort are and all credit to Inside Out um, 
the decision to reimburse our participants at the same rate, both GPs and people with lived experience. This is a beautiful image um, supplied by the participant you just saw. So we were also able to use some autoethnography. Um, participants sent us images and some of them did self-recordings as well, which added a really amazing reflexive layer to this research. So this is an artwork um, from the participant um, called My Army, which describes her experience of the illness. You can see the dark side and the lighter side in that. The dark side represents the illness. Um, it gave us a really vivid jumping off point um, for the discussion. Um, and in this particular case, you know, she shared with us that that dark part is the illness and all the people on the left-hand side are the people supporting her. So, you know, her therapist, her dietitian, her case manager, her family, her psychiatrist, psychologist, all the people she saw when she was in hospital, she really wanted to show that it's a team effort and that all these people are behind her saying you can do it. Um, it really allowed people to reflect before they came to the sessions as well um, and also just give us sort of a deeper level of understanding and insight into their experience, whether it was GPs, um, families of people with eating disorder or the people themselves. Thanks, Sean. So something that we talk about in service design is front stage and backstage and between it, the, this line of visibility. And so we were focused on these, largely these two perspectives, GPs and people with lived experience and their families. And so in the context of this approach, um, we weren't able to see this line of visibility firsthand um, by sitting in and observing a live consultation in the doctor's rooms, you know, as well as being in the midst of a pandemic you know, there are issues with privacy and consent and the issue of researchers observing these interactions having unintended consequences for the very things that we're trying to improve, um, detection and care. So we'll move on, Sean, thank you. So given this aspect of our research was missing, we still felt we needed a way after these um, interviews via Zoom to understand that line of visibility and so the next best thing for us was to speak with GPs in their consulting room. So we masked up and we organised, you can see Sean in this picture here with one of the GPs we spoke to, and we organised what we call tech tours to speak to GPs and we gave them scenarios of where and, you know, of how they could show us or role play the sorts of conversations they'd be having with people who would be presenting. And that, that got us a lot closer um, to better understanding what those interactions were like. They were able to demonstrate what they would do in those conversations, so how the conversation might go, what's the sort of information they'd show the person, would they show them on their screen, would they use their practice software, would they print something out for them and hand it to them, would they give them something to take home and complete. It gave us a lot of um, detail and nuance that was quite difficult to get just from asking GPs what they do, so that was a really really useful um, input for us. And look, for the designs to be adopted in a sustainable way, they need to integrate into GPs' existing workflows. And so, um, as one GP said in the research, GPs are as diverse um, as their patients. So this next picture is of a GP and she's shared a quote with us there as well. Um, and so part of it was looking at similar scenarios that doctors face, like discussions about anxiety and depression. So eating disorders is a very specialised um, part of, of mental health illnesses. And as Peter mentioned earlier, we know that people talk to their GPs 
about mental health more than any other health issue. So this was a really great springboard for us to better understand what a collaborative dialogue could look like um, for people getting care for eating disorders. We'll move on, Sean, thanks. And so what's taking place is what Hutchins calls cognition in the wild. And this refers to human cognition in its natural habitat, where the way we are thinking um, adapts to the natural surroundings. So in this case, the tools that we prototyped and tested with GPs are representations of the cognition that needs to happen in that context. Um, and they can make the interaction happen in a way that if the tool was absent, it wouldn't occur. So this DAS21 or the Depression, Anxiety and Stress Scale was a tool that pretty much all the GPs we spoke with were familiar with. Um, and it became like an analogue um, to help us imagine a conversation about depression and anxiety. And so look, often people's mental model is that um, cognition happens within the brain and everything's happening through the individual. But what this really showed us is that cognition is distributed in the context um, and amongst the people who are taking part in it. So detecting an eating disorder and having even just having a conversation about it is a really difficult thing. And both the person and the doctor can find it really hard. So the tools, you know, we're looking to explore help to facilitate that interaction, um, you know, so that they could more easily have that conversation. Thanks, Sean. And look, the mental health questionnaires acted as what we often refer to as a Trojan horse that we look for in strategic design. Um, what we were looking to explore was this tool for identifying a condition and starting an intervention through a collaborative dialogue. Thanks, Sean. So the lessons we learned here, um, you know, where possible, can, can we just get more context for the thing that we're trying to understand to inform what, as Peter and Sean described, is a really complex challenge? Um, we also went back to some of the same people to start prototyping in context. And that's the image that you're seeing there. There's two GPs who work in the same practice looking at and talking to us about some of the prototypes that we created after um, we had co-design sessions um, with the different participants to come up with those ideas. And then we also prototyped remotely and that enabled us again to get that geographical spread and get that diversity. Um, we went back to people we'd already spoken to, to to show them how their ideas translated into prototypes, which meant they could add another layer to inform how these things could be used. Um, and it was great because, you know, we'd speak to these people a second time and they'd say, oh, I've been thinking about it and there's something I really wanted to add. And so we found that there was value in carefully curating um, the different participants that we had through the process. So we had, a, you know, obviously a bigger number at the beginning and then we sort of drilled down and, and tried to maintain that diversity as we did um, ideation together and then into prototyping and then testing the prototypes. Um, and for us, for us, you know, this was truer to the idea of participative design, the people who shared their stories then came up with the ideas, were then able to participate in, you know, making those ideas better once we had a prototype in front of them. Um, look, we learned so much through this process and we feel incredibly lucky to have done this work um, with Inside Out and it's really this, the bit we've shown you today is just the beginning and it's a, it's a long program of work. Um, and so Paul is now going to lead a discussion um, with Peter and Sean on the big things that we took away. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Beck. Um, this first learning borrows 
from um, Dan Hill's playbook and the idea of layers and the idea that some layers move faster than others. And I think health in particular is one of those slower moving layers. And there's good reason for that because that pace basically helps us start to um, manage the risk and the, you know, the, the outcomes that could be quite dire if we move too quickly um, within that system. So it's slow for a reason. But as we heard, 17 years is such a long time to move um, in that space to actually have people getting help. And we know we need to have people getting help sooner. So is there a way that we can start to um, work in a way that actually allows us to slip and have some layers in health move faster than others. So the idea of prototyping can um, be a good way to start to mitigate that risk. Um, but to have someone tell that story better than me, I'm going to hand over to our oracle, Peter, um, will take us through. Thanks, Paul. So, look, I know that figure of 17 years actually really shocks people often, but um, the, the fact is that, as Paul said, that translation process really does can take a very long time because before we do anything in a widespread way, we really need to make sure that um, innovations, whether it's medicine or something that's digital, is effective and doesn't and does no harm. Like do no harm is is the one of our main tenets. Um, and hence the research process, which which is um, takes a, a long time and there's hoops to jump through. So the other thing, the reason that then means that a lot of research isn't funded all the way through to translation implementation. So they'll fund the first part of research project, and then you've got to prove that it works, and then the next part will be uh, funded or not, as the case may be. Treatments need to be approved by the TGA. There's a billion hoops. So. For, for our thinking, co-design really increases the likelihood that an intervention will be acceptable to the people who it's meant to be helping. And it de-risks us in terms of, you know, when we get to that translation implementation phase, uh, are we likely to um, be able to deliver something that's going to be acceptable uh, to the community and the people that it's meant to serve? Um, so I think this kind of co-design process may not necessarily speed up translation in and of itself um, because all designs around treatments will ultimately need to be piloted in a more researchy kind of way through an academic institution. But everything that we can do to reduce the risk around that will help speed up the pace of the project process. Um, and, it, and a co-design process around this type of project really increases our confidence in terms of what do we move through, what do we move ahead with in terms of development. And look, in a world full of really limited funding, um, we've got a much better chance of positive outcome if we've engaged people right at the start and right throughout the project. I think this this next one is is really important as well, this idea of co-creation, Fieta. So it's that where organisations can spend more resources actually talking about letting patients help, um, you know, in, 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 in quote marks there, rather than actually doing the hard work of co-creation. And, and sometimes there's intent to do it, but there's lots of cultural barriers to that within an organisation. Um, so I think that's important for us to, to, to consider and actually how we focus on doing the actual work um, more so than talking about it. But um, I'll let Sean take this one as well. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, I think people might 
um, say they're doing it or think they're doing it. Um, and that can largely be unintentional. I think in a lot of cases, people want to do it, but might not know how to do it properly, or there might be cultural barriers. Um, and looking at our project in particular, um, doing this part of it well, um, made it quite an expensive investment, um, doing this kind of one-on-one -on -one research with people with lived experience and with GPs. Those sessions require preparation and time and investment from um, all involved, Paul Beck, myself and Peter. Um, and we did look at other models where you, you know, throw 20 GPs in a room together or 20 people with lived experience of an eating disorder and ask them questions. And obviously that has its place as well. Um, but we really wanted to spend time on those individual conversations and individual stories to kind of map out the themes that would come out of them and, and, and yeah, just really spend time in that, in the, in the, in the specificity of, of those individual conversations. The, the other thing is that in, um, in mental health, the consumer or service user or the person's position of nothing about us without us is really firmly held and this really needs to extend across all phases of any project or service planning in mental health and it's really important that that process isn't tokenistic. There's obviously quite a few challenges around that. For example, in this project we co-designed with GPs and consumers, as we've said, but they weren't part of our, of our planning team um, and mostly for pragmatic reasons, like they've got other jobs and so they, can't, they couldn't actually join us right at that first stage. So to get around that, you really just have to consult with and be led by people at, at as many points in the continuum as possible. And I suppose in terms of the co-creation theatre aspect, one other thing that we could do in moving forward um, projects like ours, I guess, would be ensuring that co-designing at the planning stages um, by getting people on staff perhaps in a, in a project team and the other time um, and, and then through active research and prototype testing. And even here at this point we would have um, our, our consumers, our people with lived experience of eating disorder and GPs are here presenting our learnings with us today. The last one there, I think, what can we do differently to continue that? So, Matt, uh, Maybe I can just tell you quickly what we've done since the completion of MELD's um, process analysis work. So your report, the MELD report, had four potential sort of prototypes based on that co-creation process. We took the report and the recommendations internally at IOI and our digital team, the clinical team, researchers, our expert GP um, and practice manager all looked at the report and the recommendations. Um, and our practice manager in particular started looking at the practice workflows, so not just the GP sort of patient or person workflows. And we started thinking about where do we need to create change in that broader system to support um, GPs and just asking ourselves, have we missed anything uh, in that sort of broader context? Um, and we needed to know whether the prototypes really stood up when we looked at the issues from a broader perspective. Uh, we knew they did between the GP and between the person. Um, we had to work out what, what our digital tool, what our spend on our development will need to, would need to do and also what it didn't need to do. Um, and that broader, broader system, which includes practice managers and nurses and how they flag issues within practice software and funding mechanisms and all of that kind of thing. 
So at the end of that internal process, I'm very happy to report that the MELD findings and prototypes were really validated. So we came full circle once we'd explored all of those additional elements. And um, and in answer to your question, sorry, Paul, it was quite a long way to respond, but if we had our time again, I think, um, and we knew then what we knew now, perhaps we would have expanded the brief to include that broader system a bit more um, and and those broader workflows considering how important they really are for the way GPs work Um, and that probably would have given us the confidence to progress to the development stage sooner. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, That's all from us. Um, I just want to say, again, a big thank you to, to Sean and Peter and Inside Out in particular for the opportunity to, to work with them this week. We really enjoyed so much of it. And, um, yeah, thank, thank you to everyone for, for tuning in today as well too. Thanks, Thanks everyone. And, and I'd like to thank um, Mel. They're amazing, amazing people to work with. Yes, agree, 100%. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, wonderful presentation. It's really good to see such a strong case study about how this work can be undertaken.